Does the Lord's Prayer challenge God to one-up himself? This is the Bible Reset Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Welcome to the show. I'm Alex Goodwin here with Paul Kimnitty and Glenn Powell. Over our last two episodes, we've been exploring this idea of the Lord's Prayer as a new Exodus prayer where Jesus urges his disciples to earnestly pray to the God who sets people free, telling him to do it again. Last time we looked closely at the opening address of the prayer and the first two petitions which are directly about God himself. We made the case that clearer and stronger wording, along with an understanding of the biblical context and story, shows that Jesus believes his job is to lead Israel into a brand new Exodus experience. Everything Jesus teaches in this prayer is something that God did in the first exodus. So he says, Father, make your name holy, bring your kingdom. It's kind of like he's saying with each and every line, do you remember who he is? Do you remember what he did? Yeah, guys, this has been a a fascinating study. Those of us that have prayed this prayer hundreds of times, uh, I'm supposing that many who are listening as well never really made this connection between the first exodus and the Lord's Prayer being a, uh, a second exodus prayer. And this, this exodus idea, by the way, does fit right into Judaism in the first century. The, the world into which Jesus was born was a world where the Jewish community had a really strong sense of expectation for God to come down to liberate them once more. And you, you really see that when you read um, the books between the First and the New Testament. And, and also, you know, historians like Josephus, you can see that these people are desperate, you know, for God to show up. Rome has become the new Egypt. And uh, as was true of their slavery in Egypt, they were utterly helpless to free themselves and, you know, as we know through history, they made some attempts to free themselves that were disastrous. And so the messianic longing and this desire for another um, exodus was really at a fever pitch. By the way, um, a point of clarification, which we probably should have mentioned earlier, when we say that, you know, the exodus is a, like a prototype of all of God's saving work, we're not just talking about Israel's release from Egypt. The, the word Exodus is a shorthand for this entire group of connected events. You know, the freedom from Egypt, uh, the giving of the law, God coming down to live with his people, you know, tabernacling with them, provisions for the journey through the wild wilderness, and even entry into the promised land. And so, uh, as the First Testament scholar uh, J. Richard Middleton says, when you refer to the Exodus, it really means everything you know, from the rescue from Egypt to the restoration of Israel uh, in their own land. Yeah, that's good. And uh, I just wanted to throw in one thing before we jump into today's topic, and that is, um, it's interesting to me how once you start um, realizing that there's this Exodus connection. When you read other places in the Bible, you notice that it will kind of jump out at you. This week I was reading the book of Nehemiah and came across this as part of a prayer of repentance prayed by those who were just returned to Jerusalem from 
exile. And as so often in the First Testament, when Israel is asking God to do something now, they remind him of how he saved them earlier in the Exodus. So here's what I read in that prayer. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground, but you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. And I thought, wow, I never knew that was in there, but there you go. They said, you made a name for yourself. So God coming down, bringing his mighty works to overpower the enemy, and thereby making a name for himself. So Jesus is telling his disciples with this prayer, yeah, basically just go tell God to do that again. Father, go make a name for yourself right now. Make your name holy. And I just realized this is probably more places that I've never noticed before. But once you're kind of tuned in, then I think you can see these threads in other places, and they really are there. So this time we're going to dive into the next two petitions of the prayer, which are kind of about us. And then the final negative one, which closes the prayer. So in our rendering, they go kind of like this. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone indebted to us. Don't bring us to the time of trial. And then one last reminder before we dive in. It's worth just reiterating that the first words of all the lines of the petitions are kind of in this imperative form, like telling God what to do. Make your name holy, bring your kingdom, give us our bread, and forgive us. And then finally, don't do this other thing. So I think this is kind of why the early church opened the Lord's Prayer by saying, we make bold to pray. It's a, it's a pretty bold thing to, uh, to be kind of telling God what to do. Yeah, thanks, Alex. So the first petition about us is uh, give us today our daily bread. And, you know, at first glance, this looks to be kind of an easy one, um, you know, I think uh, Eugene Peterson in the message said, keep us alive with three square meals. <laughs> there you have it, right? <laughs> there you go. And, yeah. uh, you know, we immediately, you know, sense that there's probably a reference to, uh, to manna and to the people of, of Israel in the wilderness. And yes, by the way, the prayer is, is worded uh, in a way that immediately calls our mind to that event, because in Exodus we read, You know, my people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. So notice, you know, the double reference of the word day, just as it is in uh, in Jesus' prayer. But as we've been learning all along in this prayer, as we (laughs) relate it to the first Exodus, kind of the money question here is: Is Jesus simply referring to the need for daily? for daily food? Is he just talking about three meals? Or is this prayer for a new exodus, um, you know, superior to the first exodus? I think this is a case where more knowledge of the historical context can really aid us. Manna for Israel was not just regular bread, right? So it would make sense that the Lord's Prayer is also not only or just about regular bread. So 
In Psalm 78, it's called the bread of heaven, or even the bread of angels. Uh, the coming of manna was another one of God's mighty signs and wonders that marked so much of the Exodus. So the belief arose within Israel that when the new Exodus comes, God will once again miraculously provide a new manna. Here are some examples that highlight this line of thinking. One Jewish midrash, which is basically just an ancient commentary on the Bible that Israel had, this one on the book of Exodus says, You will not find manna in this age, but you will find it in the age to come. And the midrash on Ecclesiastes affirms, As the first Redeemer caused manna to descend, so will the latter Redeemer cause manna to descend. And then just one more example, very clearly uh, from the book of 2 Baruch, this includes uh, the line, And it will happen that when all that should come to pass is accomplished, the Messiah will begin to be revealed. And it will happen at that time that the treasury of manna will come down again from on high, and they will eat of it in those years, because these are the ones who will have arrived at the consummation of time. So when will this new manna come? Israel's answer in this period, especially between the Testaments and these other writings, very alive by the time of the first century, is the new manna will come in the age to come. When the latter Redeemer gets here, that is, Moses was a Redeemer, but there's another Redeemer coming, and when he gets here, the new manna will come. And this is the consummation of time. Yeah, Glenn, and this goes a long way, I think, towards shedding some light on what's happening in this passage in John's gospel, when Jesus faces this hostile question where somebody says, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So given this expectation in Israel for a new manna, I think we can understand even more clearly what Jesus meant when he replied, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then Jesus says, I am this bread of life. So he's claiming to be himself the new manna of this new exodus that Israel's been waiting for. And he's this messianic bread from heaven, this bread of life. And he's kind of telling us that daily bread in the Lord's Prayer is more than just bread. With the coming of Jesus, to pray for daily bread means to ask God to give us everything that the Messiah is working for, right? So freedom from the dark powers of sin and death restoration, flourishing life, etc. It's not just bread, it's, it's praying for Jesus himself and everything that he's about. Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, we need to um, make it clear that if, if, if people are listening and, you know, hearing about this connection between the Exodus and the New Exodus prayer, and this is new to you, that doesn't mean that any praying that you've done with, with the Lord's Prayer in the past has all been for naught because you did not understand this connection. But as you get into this, you, you cannot help but to connect the dots because they are everywhere. And, you know, here's just another interesting piece of evidence or connection that speaks towards 
this idea that the Lord's Prayer is a New Exodus prayer. So um, the church father, Jerome, reminds us that Jesus and the disciples at this time would have been speaking in Aramaic. And so in that version of the prayer, the word for daily was instead the word tomorrow. So this petition in Aramaic would have been rendered something like this, give us today the bread of tomorrow. Well, what what does that bring us back to? And of course, you know, we remember that since Israel wasn't allowed to pick up manna on the Sabbath, they were instructed to gather a double portion on the sixth day, and that is they could get the bread of tomorrow. And then when we add this to the point that uh, Israel came to refer to God's coming act of salvation and restoration of all things, they called it the great tomorrow or the great Sabbath rest that's coming, the consummation of all things. And so, you know, the case again is overwhelming uh, in the scriptures. Ah. We're not making this up. Um, we're, we're not creating something, you know, out of the ether. The connection is solidly there. That's fairly remarkable. So if, if what you're saying is right, and if Jerome is right, Paul, then the original Lord's Prayer would have been directly referring to God's final act of salvation for his people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Jesus would be teaching his disciples to ask for the bread, the life, the salvation of the great tomorrow to be given to them today. So it's this idea which we mentioned last time, I think, once again, Jesus is telling his disciples to pray the future, God's great act of restoration and hope and redemption, pray that future into the present, right? So now is when we need it to happen. And that's what Jesus is teaching when he teaches his disciples the Lord's Prayer. But either way, I mean, I think even without Jerome's point, which is fascinating about going back to the Aramaic, which was the language, of course, that was most commonly spoken in first century Israel. But even with the other connections about a new manna coming in the new age, um, we're clearly in new Exodus territory here in this petition about giving us our daily bread. I mean, it's just like manna was. It was daily bread for Israel, but it was also a miraculous thing, a great sign of God's salvation. And that's basically what we're saying about the daily bread thing. It's it's both and. Um, it's a great thing that the disciples are praying for, not merely a mundane and small thing like getting a piece of bread today. All right, so moving forward into the next petition. We have the the second petition that's kind of focused more on us. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone indebted to us. And again, feels pretty straightforward, I would say, but I suspect there's (laughs) more going on beneath the surface. Yeah, I mean, throughout this prayer, we're seeing the things that are seminal, right, to the kingdom. And you know, is we read the first Exodus story, you know, there's the rescue from Egypt, there's the crossing of the Red Sea, and now the nation is led into the Sinai wilderness. And, you know, it's, it's a, there, there's a purpose for the wilderness. There's a wilderness agenda, if you will. And high on this wilderness agenda is the idea that these people that have been rescued now um, probably millions by that time, that they need to be cleansed and they need 
to be forgiven. And we know that um, a fair amount of the law was, was dedicated to these sacrifices for various kinds of, of wrongdoing. And so we, we read there and we begin to see if our Bible reading is good, that this theme of needing cleansing and forgiveness are going to be seminal if the people of God are, you know, ever going to become uh, fully um, embodied as those in the, in the image of God. And so the gravity here of, and the theme of forgiveness, I mean, just a quick aside, if you read this story, these are not sanctified people <laughs> that are coming, <laughs> uh, coming out of, right. out of Egypt. Um, they are perpetually harping and complaining. You know, they go to Sinai, they hear the voice of God, there's the thunder, there's the smoke. And, you know, days after They've created an idol, and they're throwing a drunken orgy, and they're jealous of each other, and they're, they're just nasty people. And, and so God's vision for a flowering you know, humanity who are going to collaborate with him to bring his kingdom and his reclamation of the world back, there has to be, central to the story is this whole matter of forgiveness and cleansing from the stain of sin. So the question then arises, um, would the new Exodus also be a time of forgiveness and cleansing? Are we over that yet? And of course, the answer is no. Uh, only what Jesus brings is a better and a more effective cleansing, as the book of Hebrews says, animal sacrifices you know, had to be continually repeated because they really didn't change things. So what is needed in the new Exodus story with the new Moses is a more powerful means of confronting sin and its stain. And in every aspect of the first Exodus, the new Exodus was going to bring a better, deeper, longer lasting version of what the first Exodus introduced in terms of forgiveness. And we have to remember the context again is the first century, right? So it's after Israel's exile and their punishment and what what the new exodus idea was all about for Israel was was a restoration after that exile. We have to remember that the cause of that exile in the first place was their great wrongdoing, right? They had put Torah on the shelf, they were ignoring God's justice, turning away to worship other gods. So all the prophets who were casting visions of the coming restoration always mentioned the forgiveness of Israel's sin as the precondition of their renewal. As Jeremiah explains, when Yahweh comes to make a new covenant with Israel, it will begin with the forgiveness of Israel's great wickedness. He will remember their sins no more. Also, uh, we shouldn't forget, you know, that's this debate sometimes, which version to use, like the one version says sins and one says debts. Well, those ideas were connected in Israel's thought. To wrong somebody means you now owe them something, and you have to make it right. Mm. So we find Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer using the word debts, and Luke's using sins. You know, it's this great debate, and sometimes when you go to visit another church, you kind of pause if you say the Lord's Prayer, because you don't know if it's a debts church or a trespasses <laughs> church, right, when you pray the Lord's Prayer out loud. 
But actually, both aspects are included in this prayer for the new Exodus. In the first Exodus, not only were sins forgiven with these introduction of these sacrifices and the Day of Atonement, but God also unveiled his plans for debts to be erased. So in the year of Jubilee, every 50 years, liberty would be announced. Land would be returned to its original owners. Poor people who had sold themselves were set free again. So debts were erased. So sins and debts, all of it gets taken care of in these Exodus experiences. Yeah. So, you know, Jesus starts his public ministry by telling Israel to repent so that they can receive God's forgiveness. And then in his opening sermon in the synagogue in Nazareth, um, he, he kind of announces this new Jubilee idea, right? So he's right in mm. line with this, this sort of thinking about how sins and debts are both going to be dealt with in this new Exodus work, this new Exodus sort of mission, uh, because it was about the end of exile. So he announces that this freedom is coming in and through him, the same sort of liberty that was found in the first Exodus, but now extended to the rest of the world. So Jesus, you know, makes this announcement, but then also instructs his disciples to both pray for this forgiveness for themselves, but also to embody it in their own communities, in their own lives. Mm. So, you know, this idea of being a new Exodus disciple means both receiving the forgiveness from God and this release from God for, uh, for the burden of your own sins, but also to be kind of a, a forgiving person to others, to be a liberty giving person to others, to forgive and to erase debts and to, in, in that way, be like your father, who is the God of this Exodus. All right. So we've covered both pairs of the main petitions in Jesus's prayer. And we found kind of a new Exodus connection, I would say, in, in each line. But then there's this kind of solitary petition at the very end that feels sort of a, abrupt, I, I would say, and even kind of harsh or odd in some ways. Like, don't do this other thing. We're, we've been asking for all these, all these things for ourselves and, and that sort of thing, but don't do this other thing. Um, so it feels like there's something different going on here. And just, again, we're rendering this last line as don't bring us to the time of trial. Yeah, I think, guys, that what we want to do is make the case that that, that is a, a really strong rendering and, and maybe should be the uh, prioritized rendering. So, you know, we have to answer the question first. Uh, why does this, you know, in most translations say temptation? And the Greek word uh, can be translated both ways. It can be either um, trial or temptation, depending on the context. But I would say, given what we know now about the New Exodus context of the prayer, that uh, bring us to the time of trial seems to to fit better. So, for for starters, you know, the book of James tells us that God never tempts anyone to sin. So it would seem a bit strange to pray asking him not to lead us into temptation. He's not going to do that anyhow. On the other hand, the meaning of trial really does fit our overall theme very well. And repeatedly in Deuteronomy, we hear that theme of, of trial. Um, in the first exodus, the people are going to go through 
Moses predicts trials and tribulation. You know, he says in his swan sermon, has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testing or trials, by signs and wonders, like all the things that the Lord your God did for you in, uh, in Egypt? And, you know, if you read the Pentateuch, it is. It's riddled with testings and, and trials. But even more importantly, we find that as this longing for the new Exodus was growing within Israel, it came to be associated with a time of great testing and trial. In other words, this wasn't going to come easy. The kingdom was not going to come easy. And we actually see the seeds of this all the way back in that same sermon in Deuteronomy after. Uh, Moses predicts that Israel is going to fail to remain faithful to Yahweh in the new land. He predicts in advance that there's going to be an exile, and he describes the punishment. And then Moses says, when you are in distress and tribulation, and all these things have happened to you, then in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. And I, you know, I think this is this is pretty amazing. Uh, basically, we're being told that as the end of all things uh, comes and as the, the, the curtain is going to drop down on humanity, there are going to be times of trials and testing. And yet there is this legitimizing. Uh, we're invited to pray this prayer um, that comes out of our deep humanity. We do not want to be overwhelmed by pain and sorrow. And so we're invited to pray, Lord God, don't bring us to the time of trial. It, an example of that, just quickly, um, is Jesus is uh, in Matthew talking about the end of all things. He says, how terrible it will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers and pray, he says, that your flight will not be in the winter. And so in spite of the fact that we know that the end of all things is going to be uh, a time of stress, distress, and tribulation, we're invited to pray um, that we can escape that. Yeah, that's from that that very seed, Paul. I think um, this idea just grows stronger in Israel's story, right? So again, we're talking about how important the context is historically of the period between the two Testaments and um, how important and helpful it is to know that, that history because that's the Judaism that Jesus was born into. So that's the context that he knows and his disciples know. So many of the books from this intertestamental period expand on this idea of exodus and trials kind of going together. They, they go on about a time of dark tribulation that will precede the coming of God's greatest salvation and rescue. This is referred to as the messianic woes, or the birth pangs of the Messiah has these different terms associated with it. But it's always a time of peril, of testing, of heavy trials for the people of God. So books like First Enoch, The Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, The Apocalypse of Baruch, all these, these books that were written in between the period or near the time of the first century, and many others actually testify about this. By the time of the first century, this was a well-established feature of Jewish thought. So this connection between the two. And then I just think there's one other passage that kind of gives us more insight 
into the idea of trials being the right word here, uh, there's this remarkable similarity between the prayer that Jesus is teaching his disciples in the Lord's Prayer and the prayer of Jesus himself in Gethsemane, the night he was arrested. Mm. Like, notice, when you, when you read those side by side, both begin by calling God Father. Both pray for God's will to be done. And in both situations, Jesus tells his disciples to pray that they won't have to face this trial, this great tribulation that Jesus is already entering into himself, but he wants his followers to be spared. So this connection between the exodus and the trial is strong, but Jesus says, like, let's pray that you don't have to face it. In fact, I think what's really going on there is Jesus is going out to face that trial himself, mm. right? His arrest, his trial being beaten, the crucifixion, Jesus is exactly in the midst of this tribulation or great time of testing that Jewish history kind of made the connection with, but he's praying for his disciples not to have to go to, through that. In fact, Jesus even prays to the Father, look, if I can get out of this, if there's something, some other way that you can do this, like, please take me out of this, mm. but he's willing to go through it on behalf of his people, kind of as the representative of Israel going through the great trials, rather than his followers having to do that. So again, more evidence, I think, that the word trial is the right one in the Lord's Prayer. So basically, right after his new Exodus Passover meal with the disciples, and right before Jesus himself becomes the Passover lamb that is sacrificed, he prays another new Exodus kind of prayer when he's in Gethsemane, using the same language he had taught his disciples to pray. So the Messianic feast is coming, but first the cup of suffering must be drunk. Jesus dreads it, and he begs the Father for some other way, and he tells his disciples, tell your Father, don't, the imperative, don't bring us to that time of trial. So the Lord's Prayer has this strong and direct language once again, and again we see this is why it's such a bold prayer, and uh, why the early church, you know, I think understood that and always introduced it with that language. Don't bring us into this time of great trial and testing, but do bring us the new exodus. That's basically what it comes down to. So. Now let's see if we can put all these pieces together. So we find Jesus heading to Jerusalem for his own exodus, teaching his disciples this new exodus prayer. The context in both Luke and the entire biblical narrative tells us that this was not a generic religious prayer. It was historically specific, speaking directly to the immediate work of Jesus and the meaning of Israel's story. The disciples were being invited into this Exodus moment to join Jesus, telling God to bring it, to make it happen. It was time for a much greater liberation to happen for Israel and for the world. Moses and Elijah were there urging Jesus on. Everything in the Law and Prophets was pointing to this moment, this trial, this forgiveness, this bread, this kingdom this name being made holy. Our Father, the God of the Exodus, has to show up once again. Pray for it, Jesus said. Pray for it. That's a good word, Glenn. And 
I know I've personally learned a lot over these last couple episodes. And I think probably like many of our listeners, the Lord's Prayer has always been just sort of this generic prayer to me. And, you know, I always thought, of course, yeah, we say hallowed be your name to remind ourselves mm-hmm. to be reverent while we pray this prayer, right? Or we say give us our daily bread is just sort of this generic way of asking for what whatever we need to get through the day. And it just in a lot of ways feels kind of tame, kind of mundane. So understanding how historically specific the prayer is is super helpful and I think helps paint this big multifaceted, multicolored picture of everything that Jesus was up to. So I've certainly got gotten a lot out of it. I hope hope our listeners have as well. And on the other side of that, of course, and this is what we'll be getting into on the next episode, despite how historically specific it was, it still does have powerful implications for people that pray for it today, for, for Christians today. So I'm looking forward to diving into that next time and, and wrapping up this little series on the Lord's Prayer. As always, the Bible Reset Podcast is brought to you by Changemakers, our community of donors who give monthly gifts of any amount to help us create resources that change the way people read the Bible. If you appreciate this podcast, if you've gotten a lot out of it, and if you'd like to support our work, you can learn more about Changemakers at instituteforbiblereading.org slash changemakers. That's going to do it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.